Just the Facts, Please is a podcast dedicated to the complexities of diabetes. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I'm passionate about keeping you in the driver's seat of your healthcare journey. Join me and a squad of experts for bite-sized episodes that break down the complications, quirks, and questions surrounding this disease. I'm thrilled to introduce my distinguished guest, Dr. Andrew Bugby, a renowned veterinarian who's an associate professor and chief of internal medicine at Texas A&M University and director of the Texas A&M Veterinary Diabetes and Endocrine Clinic. His impressive journey includes degrees in biomedical sciences and a doctor of veterinary medicine from Texas A&M, followed by a rotating internship and internal medicine residency at the University of Georgia. He is a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and has been a faculty internist at Purdue University, the University of Georgia, and the Texas A&M School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Bugby's expertise lies in small animal endocrinology, particularly diabetes mellitus and canine hypercortisolism. <laughs> Join me as we explore the world of veterinary medicine with insights from an expert. Dr. Bugby, thank you for being my guest today. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Well, I have to start with saying that this particular episode was sparked because in 2018, I saw a koala bear that was living in the San Diego Zoo who was living with type 1 diabetes, was insulin dependent, and wore a CGM. Unfortunately, Quincy's no longer with us, but not because of diabetes. And <laughs> so I thought, what is the, I didn't know animals could have diabetes and especially those that are insulin dependent. So I want to start out with the very first question is how and why did we start testing animals for diabetes? What were the symptoms? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of similar to, you know, what we've, you know, gone through in people. And so, you know, I think it's interesting because if you look at the history of diabetes, you know, kind of animals in general, especially dogs have played a really pivotal role kind of in the discovery and kind of development of treatment for diabetes. And, and so, you know, while I think a lot of the stuff has been focused on people, you know, all vertebrates have a pancreas and therefore kind of have potential to develop things like diabetes mellitus. And so obviously, kind of the companion animals like dogs and cats get the most attention, but there you know, are other species that um, can develop it as well. And, and the clinical signs tend to be relatively similar to what people experience and that um, they'll get you know, really increased thirst and excessive urination and kind of increased appetite with pretty significant weight loss. And they can develop some of the same complications. And so I think with diabetes being around for so long and, and kind of having a good history of kind of at least understanding some of the metabolic disturbances that occur, I think that it made it kind of easy for it to be a disease process, which was recognizable and, and treated relatively similarly in veterinary medicine as well. Well, I think it's one of those things too. And I immediately think of a puppy, you know, puppies are active. They're going to be drinking more. They're going to be wanting to eat. They're eating more and they're always going to be needing to pee. And so it's just fascinating to me that, and I know with the weight loss, obviously that would be a determinant, but is diabetes are there different types of diabetes in animals? Yeah. You know, being a small animal intern is kind of ideal, mostly with dogs and cats. And so kind of their a classic example is, you know, in, in veterinary medicine, we try to use a little bit different terminology than they use in, in human medicine. And so kind of dogs, we typically refer to kind of as an insulin dependent diabetes mellitus, which we kind of liken to uh, type one diabetes in mm -hmm. people, whereas cats kind of tend to be more of a initial insulin resistance that kind of slowly develops into insulin dependence long-term or permanently like into type two diabetes in, in people. And so, you know, I think it's nice that 
you know, a lot of people have an understanding of diabetes whenever they, you know, come to have an animal that ends up getting that diagnosis that they at least have some background knowledge of what that means in people and, and kind of the pathophysiology of it and the kind of understanding of treatment. Um, but yeah, we do see that at least those two forms and small animals. And I think in other species, you know, there's different variations of that, you know, horses kind of have a, a more pronounced kind of metabolic syndrome that's diabetes, diabetes can be a part of. And then a lot of other species, it's less recognized, but I think, you know, especially with more captive animals and, you know, zoos or things like that, then we have started to see diabetes in some of these more exotic animals. But for the most part, most of the research is kind of in you know, non-human primates or dogs and cats or, or some of the large animals where it tends to be a little bit more common of an abnormality we see clinically. Well, and I go through a list and this is absolutely ridiculous. And I know we've talked about this before, but elephants can get diabetes. Yep. So yeah, there's been a report of a, a captive elephant. And, you know, I think a lot of the times in captivity, you know, these animals that, you know, may not eat kind of what they would normally eat kind of in a yeah. natural environment or kind of have the same exercise exposure, things like that, I think are predisposed to kind of getting overweight and kind of not exercising appropriately and, and therefore can get some of the type two diabetes like syndromes that we see in yeah. PBL. Fence have been reported to, to have it in captivity. There's been captive sea lions that have been reported to have it. And sea so lions. Think- <laughs> that's a crazy one. And it's like, oh, how do, I mean, did we just test a sea lion's blood sugar one day and just say, oh, wait, it's over. And what is the normal range? for an animal? Yeah, good question. I, you know, for dogs and cats, it's pretty typical. And so like, you know, mostly 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter is kind of where they run. Um, and then for most animals, I'd say that's pretty common. I think there's a couple of exceptions and things like birds have a naturally higher normal blood glucose concentration. So they can kind mm-hmm. of be in the two to 400 range. And so obviously the oh. higher their glucose is, sometimes the harder mm-hmm. it is to kind of diagnose or kind of monitor the disease process in those species. But, but yeah, there are some species variations that can occur that can make it a little bit different. But for the most part, kind of most of the normal large animals or farm animals and dogs and cats kind of have a more similar normal glucose range to people. Well, and one of the things, okay, so I'm, I, I know this isn't technically an animal and I'm the person interviewing you because I want to do this in layman's terms, um, <laughs> crustaceans, do they have a pancreas? Uh, good question. So I mean, most of the vertebrates do non-vertebrates don't necessarily have a, a pancreas, but you know, anything from, you know, fish to, you know, birds and things like that kind of yeah. all have a pancreas, turtles, parrots, things like that. I don't know about crustaceans in particular, but I would assume that they do <laughs> something. I mean, it's a, uh, releasing some type of hormone. I mean, it's yeah. I think the part, problem is, you know, a lot of the times if it's not an animal that's like kept long term or things like that, you know, yeah. an animal that's not normally in an environment where humans are going to interact with it, that sometimes it you know may go unnoticed or they're going to die before anybody would appreciate that there was a problem. And so I think that's why a lot of the exotic species, it's more in the captive population where they're kind of being managed healthcare wise that they can yeah. catch over time. How do you test the blood sugar of an elephant? People, you know, they, we have veterinary specific glucometers and most of the glucometers are validated for the typical companion animals like dogs, cats, and horses. And they're specific to veterinary medicine because animals have kind of different concentrations of glucose kind of within their red blood cells than people do. Mm -hmm. And so if you use a human glucometer, it's not going to give you the most accurate reflection of what the animal's true Mm -hmm. blood glucose is. So we have some 
um, veterinary specific ones that we use for most of the companion animals. And it's kind of similar to, to y'all as opposed to, you know, pricking a finger. And then oftentimes we're talking about, you know, pricking an ear or getting a, oh. a blood sample or sometimes pricking paw pads and lips and things like that to kind of get the blood, oh. blood for a, a glucometer reading. And then obviously, you know, in probably the past 15 years or so, I've started using the same continuous glucose monitors that are used in people. And so there's other ways without having to necessarily get repeated sticks of the animal yeah. to kind of get some glucose readings over time. I'd be curious because I know that we all fight, I say this for Americans, to get access to CGMs and then affordable ones, but does insurance cover it? How are animals getting CGMs and people can't? I know that's a, you probably can't answer that directly, but is it hard for you all to get a CGM for an animal? Not necessarily. The only one that's, there's a couple that have been validated. And so historically the iPro system was what we used. And then kind of more recently, the Freestyle Libre system has been validated yeah. in, in animals. And, you know, in the United States, especially insurance for animals, isn't kind of the a real robust process like it is in some Europe countries. And so most of the animals we see aren't insured. And so we rely on, you know, some of the pharmaceutical cost-saving mm -hmm. things like GoodRx and things like that as a way to yeah. try to get some cost savings. But a lot of it is just out of pocket cost for the clients that own the pets. Okay. So if the animal is insulin dependent, where do you give injections and are the needles the same size for them? Yeah. So it kind of depends on what you're using. We have a couple of veterinary specific insulins that we can use, and those are called Vetsilin and Prozinc. And so the reason why we have a couple of veterinary specific ones is because obviously animals are on lower doses of insulin than most people. And so our insulins are less concentrated. So as opposed to being you 100 insulins or 100 mm -hmm. units per mil, like human insulins are, ours are 40 units per mil. Mm -hmm. That allows our marks on the insulin syringes to be further apart. And so it's easier mm -hmm. to kind of dose, you know, one or two units for a cat, as opposed to people who may be on like 20 to 40 units yeah. per dose. And so and so we have those insulins that are available and those, you know, needles are relatively similar to what we would see kind of in new 100 insulin yeah. searches. But for the most part, most of the insulins we use outside of those two veterinary specific products are all human insulins. And so yeah. clients will use, you know, normal U100 insulin syringes you get at the pharmacy or they'll use the mm -hmm. pen that kind of comes with the, the insulin. So I think that our clients are used to kind of getting exposure to kind of all the different forms. In dogs and cats, we typically inject it oftentimes either kind of around the shoulder blade region of their back or kind of around the flank or hip region. You know, a lot of times it's for us easier because dogs have a lot, or dogs and cats have a lot more subcutaneous space. And so you know, if you kind of pull up the hair on the animal's back, you kind of get a nice little tent that it's easy to make sub-Q injections um, mm -hmm. into their area. And because the needles are so small, most of the time, most animals tolerate them uh, yeah. relatively easily. I think the thing we run into a lot of the times is that, you know, animals are obviously furry. And so sometimes it can be hard to ensure that the needle's actually in the skin and not just in the hair. And so sometimes for clients who are just now getting used to giving injections, we'll shave little spots kind of in the area yeah. where they're inject so they can actually visualize it and get a good feeling for it going into the skin. Because that's one of the things we have to overcome is kind of inadvertent administration into the fur, which if they're not getting it, then they're going to have underrated diabetes over time. Okay. And do you, do animals, let's just say dogs, do they get a basal and a bolus or is it just one? Yeah, so I think it'd be ideal potentially, but unfortunately, you know, because we're talking about usually at least two injections a day, kind of doing basal bolus protocols while they've been investigated research wise, oftentimes kind of result in over control of the glucose and risk hypoglycemia, which for mm -hmm. us is really concerning. And so most of the time we're kind of mimicking bolus phase insulin kind of after meals because dogs in particular get really 
high glucose responses after they eat if they don't have insulin on board. And so usually they'll eat and kind of get insulin at the same time to combat that postprandial glucose spike. Whereas in cats, since most cats don't necessarily meal feed, they may graze over the course of the day, kind of as long mm-hmm. as cats are eating over the day, then usually we'll just have the clients kind of give them injections at least you know 12 hours apart over the course of the day. And their response to food is not as pronounced as it is in dogs. So they tend to kind mm-hmm. of fluctuate in a more narrow range over the course of the day. And so kind of the association with feeding and injection is not as important in, in cats as it is in dogs. And do you change the diet of an animal once they're diagnosed with diabetes? Because I don't know what all is in pet food, but some of them are more high quality than others are protein based. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for dogs, because dogs get insulin dependent forms. And so kind of once most dogs are diagnosed with diabetes, it's not reversible and they're going to be diabetic for life. And so oftentimes we'll, you know, recommend kind of a high fiber type food to kind of mimic um, what diabetic people would be on to try to help kind of with the reduction of that post-meal glucose spike. Unfortunately, you know, high fiber foods are not the most palatable foods. And so sometimes it can be hard to get dogs to eat those reliably. And we really need them to eat in order to get their insulin injection. Whereas for cats, diet plays a really big role probably in the development of diabetes because, you know, cats as obligate carnivores have a very low normal carbohydrate requirement. Mm. I mean, a lot of the commercial cat foods that are out there have a much higher carbohydrate content than what the cat needs, which contributes to some of our fat cats that are, you know, lazy and (laughs) laying around the house all day. And then they get these high carb diets and that can help set up the environment for them to get diabetes. And so we do recommend changing uh, cat food after they've been diagnosed with diabetes to kind of more mimic what they would eat in nature, which is a really high protein, low carb diet Mm -hmm. to help oftentimes control their diabetes. And in some populations of cats, we can actually reverse their diabetic condition and get them off of insulin injections over time. That's fascinating in itself. And that's a whole other podcast series. Right yeah. there. But, I mean, cause that's, I mean, every human's dream. Can animals go into diabetes ketoacidosis? Yes, they definitely can. And, you know, and so a lot of the times it's, you know, unregulated diabetes that, you know, they are diabetic and doing well on insulin and then develop, you know, pancreatitis or some other yeah problem that kind of makes them insulin resistant. And it's also really common for um, animals as kind of their first problem, you know, that's associated with diabetes and before they're diagnosed is to kind of have diabetic ketoacidosis that gets diagnosed on a more emergent basis, just because the clients may not appreciate kind of the increased thirst or urination, or if they're slowly losing weight, they may attribute it to like aging and, and kind of things like that may go missed and they can definitely develop that. And then, you know, I know in people kind of the SGLT2 inhibitor medications like, you know, Jardians and things like that, that are out there have been used for a long time. And then veterinary medicine, we just recently got those approved for cats. And so that's a new form of therapy that we have two drugs. Now one is Bexacat or Bexagliflozin and one Synvelgo, which is Belagliflozin. And then those medications for cats, we would use that as an insulin alternative for newly diagnosed diabetic cats. And similar to people, some cats that are truly insulin dependent and aren't making any insulin in their body can go on to euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis where they have a normal blood glucose, but all the other bad things that come along with the ketoacidosis. And so, you know, now that we have those medications, we kind of see that full spectrum of diabetic ketoacidosis that has been going on in in people probably for 10 plus years. Okay. And when you're talking about these medications that, and being approved, 
Is that the FDA that approves them? I doubt I mean, it. Really? FDA approves yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So all the, you know, our veterinary insulins are FDA approved for, you know, species specific purposes and, and the two med oral medications that are out now are both FDA approved for cats only. Wow. That's really interesting. And again, I want to know about all the animals that we don't have in our backyards, but if let's just say, if you're listening to this and you're a cat lover, dog lover, what are some things that people can look for? A, we know that you said that very similar symptoms, which is thirst and urination and things like that. But is there anything else that they should be looking for? And if they get the diagnosis, what words of advice would you give to that pet lover or parent? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the you know most common things that people appreciate is definitely the thirst and urination. And yeah. you know, it's more than just you know, Fluffy came in and, you know, was running outside and drinks a little bit more water. Like a lot of the times people are talking about like, you know, the dog waking him up in the middle of the night because their water bowls empty or they're draining toilets in the house because they're, you know, drinking so much, you know, and a lot of the times what prompts people to bring their animal to the bed is that they have problems that are annoying. And so having lots of accidents in the house and things like that. Some people may even pick up on kind of sweet smelling breath or sweet smelling urine, things like that. Um, but I think like the, the big thing that usually catches people's eye is the the weight loss and the face of either a normal or, or increased appetite. And I think that, you know, while it's scary to, you know, have your animal have a, a disease, especially if it's going to be a lifelong disease process, I think that it's definitely a manageable disease and, and we have a, a good hold on what we're doing in veterinary medicine with controlling the condition in these, you know, species. And so I think that's, you know, I think a lot of people get an, an initial knee-jerk reaction of, I can't do that. And, and they're nervous, especially the cats of giving injections to the cat. And you know, <laughs> what we don't want to happen is for them to feel like it's not even an option and to give up because you know, cats at the time of diagnosis, about 30% of diabetic cats end up getting euthanized for various reasons. And, and a, lot, a big component of that is owners feeling like they just can't manage a diabetic cat. I think that some of that may be changing now that we have the oral medications that we may try for those people who are really adverse to injections. But I think that you know, it's a treatable, manageable disease. And, and a lot of these animals can live a really good quantity and quality of life. And when they do well, oftentimes they're going to pass away from things unrelated to their diabetes, kind of like you were saying with the koala bear that was diagnosed. But, you know, but it is a lot for clients to take on. And it's kind of, you know, similar to a parent of a diabetic child and, and kind of your schedule changes and, and your world may have to revolve around kind of the timing of injections and things like that. So, and so I think it is a lot, but I think the working together with your veterinarian and, and kind of being on board with at least giving it a shot to try treating it. It usually results in clients who are happy that they gave their animal a chance to be managed as a diabetic. Okay. Well, one of my last couple of questions is I have no family history of type one diabetes. So are we seeing if uh, not a family history, but it is like, if the cat has kittens, do we worry about those cats developing diabetes? Yeah. Especially in dogs. I think, you know, dogs, you know, because they are more similar to type one and people, we do think that there probably is a genetic basis for it. And it's likely multifactorial in that environment and diet, body weight and all that kind of stuff probably plays a role in it too. And we know that there are some predispositions in cats. And so especially outside the US, there are some well-known breed associations with the development of diabetes. But, you know, in general, most cats get it because of the inappropriate diet and excess weight and things like that. And so it may not have as strong of a genetic basis kind of in a general cat population, though we do think that there is a, a genetic role in it for um, some breeds of cats. Do you think that also environmental factors, let's just say animals' diets, has that been a factor? 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, cats in particular are really important in, in kind of my world. You know, we talked about some of the birds and like parrots and things like that, like parrots who have a really high seed content diet or predisposed to getting uh, diabetes. A lot of the animals in captivity that we talked about, usually they have some inappropriate dietary composition that may contribute to obesity and insulin resistance. And so, so yeah, so I, mean, I think we, we deal with a lot of what we're dealing with in people as far as diet and, you know, body weight and, you know, cause in veterinary medicine, food is love. And so, you know, a lot of Americans usually will overfeed their animals. And, and so obesity does play a, a large role probably in the development of it in both dogs and cats. Okay. And okay. Really for real, two last questions. When you determine how much insulin to give, let's just say a dog, what do you base it on their weight? Yeah. So we kind of have starting doses of various, you know, insulins. And so, you know, we'll start them at kind of a lower dose and, and then give them time to respond usually, you know, at least a week or so in dogs and at least a few days in cats. And then we'll either have a con- continuous glucose monitor in usually for cats or do glucose curves and dogs more commonly, and then adjust the, the dose of the insulin based on that, you know, and so typically we're, you know, starting at around, you know, a quarter to a half unit per kilogram of body weight for most insulin formulations. And then cats usually will start at one to two units per cat, just because most of the time, since they're overweight, we dose them kind of on the per cat basis as their body weight. But yeah, it's all about, you know, dose titration based on what their glucose responses and and most importantly, what their clinical signs are doing. Because unlike in people, we're not necessarily targeting really tight glycemic control One of the biggest things we want to avoid is hypoglycemia. Yeah. And so kind of if an animal's between, you know, 150 to 250 over the course of 24 hours, that's probably, you know, a good goal yeah. for most of us to, to set. And we definitely don't want most animals to kind of be 60 to hundred because the, the chance of hypoglycemia is going to be really high in that tight control population. Well, my wheels are turning so fast and I, like I said, <laughs> we're going to wrap this up. I want these episodes to be short and sweet, but my last question for you is, why did you just specialize, decide to specialize in veterinary diabetes and endocrinology? That's such a niche. I mean, who's your clientele? I mean, you got Yeah, I mean, a lot. We see, we see diabetes lots. I mean, you know, they say about one in every 250 to 300 dogs or cats will end up being diabetic. Wow. So we definitely see it a lot. But yeah, I mean, I think I've always been fascinated by kind of the endocrine system in general. And I've had really good mentors in my training that have kind of helped me kind of develop that interest. And you know, I think what I like most about endocrinology is that it's, you know, not a one and done thing that, you know, I can diagnose a condition and then I work with the patient over the course of the rest of their life, basically to, to kind of manage it and make sure they stay healthy. And then doing that, you get to develop really good relationships with both the pet and the, the clients over time. And I think that's one of those things, especially diabetes in general, which I, I think is why I like it the most is that a lot of vets don't like it, you know, because yeah. it can be complicated and there's a lot yeah. of tinkering that goes into it and, and um, a lot of changes and it can be really time consuming. And so I think, you know, some of the dislike of diabetes on the part of other people has only made me like it more and, and kind of the intricacies of managing diabetic pets. So, and so I've been excited to, to get to work with these animals and clients over time and, and hopefully get good quality of life for their pet as long as they're here. Can they just walk into your office or is this something you have to have a referral from a, another veterinarian? So yeah, we take most of our Patients at Texas A&M in general are referral-based. I think the endocrine clinic in particular is kind of separate from our internal medicine service. And I usually work to schedule those patients directly. So they don't necessarily need referrals for the diabetic and endocrine clinic per se. Okay. But, but yeah, but I think for the most part, we try to get anybody that wants to come in. 
Now, I love this. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bugby, again, for being my very first guest on this new podcast series. And I'm hoping that this will, when people listen to it, spark some comments and some interest and maybe I'll be, well, not maybe, I'll probably be sending you some questions via email right. to what yeah, people that's... say and think, because I'm just so fascinated by this. So that's awesome. I love it. Thank you for all that you do. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening. Feel free to contact me if there's a diabetes-related topic you would like me to cover. Remember, knowledge is power, and I'm here to uncover the mysteries of diabetes. Until next time, you've got this.